Hill Grape Mill, and boy, did they have a bunch, about 30 or so, I guess, that they were uh, honoring. Fine congregation. I thought about Hebrews uh, 10.24, let us stir up one another in order to uh, let us love... Uh, and endeavor to stir up one another to love, consider one another to stir up love and good works. And uh, that's what I enjoyed this week, uh, being uh, stirred up to love and good works and much loved. The Good News Today program is a part of the GBN Low Power FM station. GBN now has about eight low power FM stations that are operating in various parts of the country. And uh, one of those places is Paintsville, Kentucky. And uh, so Good News Today is aired there every morning at 8, and then they repeated at 8.30 using some of our older uh, programs. And we did have a, a man from the community who had been listening and who came one night of the meeting, and so we're hopeful that maybe they'll be able to continue to study with him and that he might uh, ultimately obey the gospel. But they are very high on the work there, uh, Good News Today. In fact, I was just so gratified that... Uh, the elders wanted me to take some time on Monday night at the end of services to talk about the work, and uh, one of the elders admonished the congregation, encouraged them to give individually if they could, which I appreciated very, very much. And then on the last night of the meeting, uh, Brother Johnny LeMaster stood before the congregation and mentioned our personal support. And he said, Jim didn't tell you much or didn't talk about that. I said a little, but he said... Uh, they're in need of personal support now to do the work they're going to be doing. And he said, if, uh, if you can help, we want you to help. You appreciate an eldership that's that unselfish and, and uh, uh, appreciated that much. And then I met with two of the three elders. One had to be out of town after the meeting that night. And they indicated pretty strongly that they're going to help in our personal support as well. So we were just uh, couldn't have been more encouraged as a result of being uh, with that fine group. And Johnny said, be sure and tell everyone here, uh, hello. Johnny LeMaster, by the way, was a major league ball player with the San Francisco Giants most of his career, a shortstop and a great uh, ball player. But he is a, a greater Christian, even as good a ball player as he was. Uh, just most impressed with that family and with the family of God there. And so um, it was indeed uh, a good week. If I told you we're going to talk about behavior in the house of God today... What would you think about? What would come to your mind if I said we're going to talk about behavior in the house of God? Well, uh, would you think about 1 Corinthians 14.40, which says that we are to do everything decently and in order. And certainly, when we come into uh, the worship, uh, we are to be on our best behavior, obviously. But as we think about behavior in the house of God, based upon our continuing study of 1 Timothy... It has nothing to do really with the house of God being a physical building because that's not what the house of God is. There is nothing holy about this facility, nothing at all. There is something holy about what is happening now, however, in this building, and that is worship to God. You remember when uh, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he told him on that occasion, take off your sandals because... Uh, the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? It had not been holy ground before the burning bush, but it was holy ground then, and I dare say it was not holy ground thereafter, was it? But it was holy ground because of the presence of God. And we are on holy ground at this moment in time. That is, when we come together to worship God in spirit and in truth, we are truly on holy ground in the sense that we're participating in 
in something that is set apart for God's glory and for his praise and for his honor. And it is not a question of coming into the house of God in order to do that. It is a question of the house of God coming together to do that. We are the house of God. That's what Paul means when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now there's your explanation as to what the house of God is. The house of God is simply another figure for the church of the living God. The house of God the church of God, the church of the living God, the church of Christ, another descriptive phrase for the church in Romans sixteen sixteen, where Paul wrote, the churches of Christ salute you. These are all scriptural designations for the church, those who have been called out from the world. And so we are talking then, Paul is, to Timothy about behavior or conduct, not just when we come together as the house of God, but the conduct that we are to engage in every day of our lives as the house of God, whether we are here in worship or not. It's not a question about our behavior here in worship, though it certainly should be good. And of course, uh, you know, there have been various things that have been said about children misbehaving in worship and uh, and how uh, parents deal uh, with that. And it's like the little boy who's, uh, the story is told about the little boy who was acting up in worship and finally his mother got up to take him out and supposedly as he was being taken out he yelled back to the congregation pray for me <laughs> he realized he he realized what was coming he knew what was going to happen because his parents were determined that he was going to learn how to behave himself in worship but the behavior about which paul speaks is our daily constant behavior as the house of god and when he writes that you ought to, how you ought to conduct yourself, well certainly Timothy would be included, but specifically the third person is used and in many translations it is translated how one ought to behave oneself or himself in the house of God. In other words, uh, he had confidence in Timothy. He was not thinking that Timothy would be uh, likely to misbehave in terms of his life. He had complete confidence in him. This is a general instruction for Timothy to relate to what church? Remember, back in chapter 1, as we began our study of 1 Timothy, we realized that he was in Ephesus. He was to remain there in Ephesus, to teach those there, not to teach any other doctrine. And so he is in Ephesus. And so this is specifically for the church at Ephesus, but obviously it is for the church at White Oak. It is for the church anywhere in any time because that's the way scripture is written. It was able to take care of a specific situation and at the same time be able to take care of future instruction for all time to come. When he says in verse 14, I write to you though I hope to come to you uh, shortly, it's almost an apologetic uh, expression as some have, uh, have determined it, saying that I'm not writing much now because I really want to come and I'm hoping that I'll be able to come and be with you shortly. But, but because of that, I am going to say something to you here that is important. 
and that I want you to relate to those at Ephesus. And yes, there were some at Ephesus who were not behaving themselves as a part of the house of God. There were those who were seeking to teach other doctrine. And so while we might think about manners when it comes to discussion of behavior in the house of God, we need teaching along other lines to remind us that the building is not sacred. This is not the house of God. Acts 17, 24, Paul in his speech on Mars Hill says, the Lord doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The worship is sacred. The study of God's word is serious. And God's presence here among us is inspiring as with God and the burning bush as we have already talked about. He is with us here. And our attitude as we are here must be Right. That is vitally important, but it is more than that. In fact, men have been slain for flippant and wrong attitudes, have they not? Think about Nadab and Abihu and their attitude toward worship. They offered fire, but it was profane fire. That is, it was not authorized by God. It was not taken from the specific altar that God had specified from which that incense, that fire was to come. And they offered fire from another location. And God struck them down. What about Ananias and Sapphira when we come to the church in the New Testament? And what did they do that was blasphemous, that was flippant, that was a lie, a lie? They offered to God a certain amount, but they said what? This is the full amount of what we have sold when in fact it was not. And they were struck down. And so it is important, obviously, that how we give how we worship, how we engage in every act of the five acts of worship. That's vitally important. But there's still another sort of behavior that is involved, and that is that the church is God's house wherever we are. And our conduct is scrutinized. We are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And so how ought men to behave themselves from that point of view, not just in our worship, but outside our worship? And what about the preaching that is done in our worship? Well, it is to be done positively and negatively. Uh, We are to reprove as preachers, to rebuke and to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, as Paul elsewhere wrote to Timothy. We're to charge those not to teach false doctrine. We are to be involved in that kind of activity as those who are preachers. But what about Christians and our activity? We are to be involved in holy living. We're to be examples to believers and to non-believers for that matter in our word, in our life, in our love, in our faith, in our purity. We are to follow after righteousness. We're to follow after godliness. We are to increase our faith. We are to intensify our love. We are to grow in our patience We are to be meek. We are to be benevolent. Benevolence is expected of Christians. And widows and orphans are to be cared for. We're to be rich in good works, ready to distribute, as the Scripture says, willing to communicate. And one who conducts himself or herself in such an acceptable manner as a part of God's house finds a home with God in the hereafter. And has the assurance of the presence and the approval of God in the here and now. Paul, as the time he penned these words to Timothy, quite likely had been released from his first imprisonment 
perhaps wrote these words from Macedonia and hoped to see Timothy, his young son in the gospel, whom he had converted very soon. But he reminds him of something vitally important about which we also must be reminded. The church, the house of God, the church of the living God is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Truth is absolutely essential. It must be presented always in love as we're to speak the truth in love as Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. But it must be truth. At times negative, at times positive as it were as we said earlier. But it must always be the truth and not just some truth but all truth. Paul on one occasion to the Ephesian elders said, I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And so the church is the pillar. And you know, it may be that because Ephesus was in mind here and Timothy was at Ephesus, the great temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was located in Ephesus. It may very well have been that Paul had that temple in mind, a temple where so many people tragically worshipped a pagan, non-existent goddess. And in that magnificent temple, as so many thought it to be so magnificent, Paul said there's something that is truly magnificent. And as glorious as that physical structure of the temple may have been, and no doubt was, its physical beauty pales in comparison to the physical, to the spiritual beauty of the church of the living God. Because the church of the living God is the pillar as well as the base or the foundation of what? That holds up truth. And not only defends it, but propagates it. Not only holds to it, but heralds it into all the world. Using every possible scriptural means of so doing. And then it seems that Paul, in verse 16... It seems here that he sought to impress on Timothy just truly how great and wonderful was the cause that he espoused. Listen to verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, Received up in glory. What a statement. What a tremendously powerful summary we have here of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Called here the mystery of godliness. You know, when we think of the word mystery, and we've talked about this before, when we think of the word mystery, many times we think of something that is just totally unknowable. Something that can never be known, something that can never be solved. But the biblical definition of mystery is something that is not knowable necessarily, but something that is hidden until revealed, and then it is known. And generally this word mystery, while it is used in various ways in the scripture, Many times it is used to refer to the mystery of the gospel in the bringing in of the Gentiles 
into covenant relationship with God. Something the Jews had to be taught. Something that the Jews, many of them, never would accept. But to those Jews who had become Christians, they had to themselves be convinced, and the household of Cornelius was the example where that convincing took place, that God, as a part of this great mystery, was ultimately going to bring into covenant relationship with himself all people, not just the Jews. John 10, 16, Jesus himself previewed that, if you will, when he said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. They'll hear my voice. He was speaking of the Gentiles. And that's part of this mystery. That is something that is not grasped by man unless it is revealed to us by God. You know, if we could grasp and understand everything concerning the Bible, concerning what is written here, then indeed we would cease to be human in effect. It's reminiscent of what Daniel Webster was said to have noted when he was having dinner with a group of literary men in Boston. And Daniel Webster was asked by one of those men, how how do you think Christ could be both God and man? Can you comprehend how, how Christ could be both God and man? And Daniel Webster's response was, No, sir, I cannot comprehend that. If I could comprehend him, he would be no greater than myself. And then he added, I need a superhuman Savior. And that's a great statement, really, isn't it? If we could fully comprehend the Christ, the Godhead, everything about the Godhead, then the Godhead would be no greater than we are. We need, and we need to feel with Daniel Webster that we need that superhuman being. We need that superhuman Savior. Godliness. God-likeness is what godliness is, being more like God. God-likeness was a mystery before Christ came. Do you realize that even the angels did not know God's plan for the salvation of man? It was still a mystery before it was ultimately and finally revealed and culminated in Christ. And that's what this verse 16 is expressing. That's what verse 16 is summarizing. But you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and 10 through 12, Peter writes of this salvation. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, notice verse 12, the end of it, things which angels desire to look into. 
The prophets didn't fully understand even some of the prophecies they were making, Peter says, about the ultimate coming of the Christ and the culmination of God's mystery of godliness. But it wasn't something that said salvation is a mystery and you can't really know whether you have been saved or not. He's saying the process, the mystery, had to be revealed. And it was revealed over a period of time, the scheme of redemption was. And the prophets themselves didn't always fully understand everything they were prophesying. And that angels desired to look into these things. They did not even fully know God's plan for the salvation of man. But now, now in the sunlight of the gospel age in which we bask, we have had it revealed. And Paul speaks impressively of it here in verse 16 to Timothy. And he so speaks of it. To us. And what does he say? First of all, God was manifested in the flesh. In other words, he was made evident to the physical senses, especially to the sight. And that was prophesied long ago in the very familiar prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Matthew, when he speaks of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, says this in verse 20 concerning Joseph. As he thought about these things and Mary's uh, virgin birth that was to come, and as the angel explained what was happening to him, she had not been unfaithful to him. But this was of the Holy Spirit. The angel appeared to him in a dream, verse 20 of Matthew 1, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 16 in that first expression. God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus, whose name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then, of course, when you turn to the gospel according to John, in the very first chapter, what do you read? At verse 14, and the word, meaning capital W, the living word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And remember what Jesus said to Philip on one occasion in John 14, at verse 9, after Philip had said, Show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. How did Jesus respond? He said, Philip, Philip, you can almost hear the disappointment in reading the words themselves. Philip, have I been with you so long and yet have you not known me? And then he added, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? God was manifested in the flesh. Because Jesus is God. That is, he is 
a member of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit comprise the Godhead. And so Paul is exactly correct, and the translation is correct when it says God was manifested in the flesh. Because Jesus is God. And as Jesus became flesh, he revealed God, the Godhead. He revealed the Father and introduced that word Father and the fatherhood of God and the concept of the fatherhood of God and the concept of the brotherhood of man. He revealed God as a God of love. He revealed the Father as a Father, a God of power over disease, over sickness, over life, over death, etc. Remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus in that encounter with him by night? No man can do these things that you are doing unless God is with him. And what did those officers who were sent to take Jesus, who were sent by the Jewish ruling authorities to take him and to bring him back, and they came back empty-handed, and what did they say when they returned? They said, no man ever spoke like this man. No man ever spoke like this man. He spoke with authority. The wisdom of men had led them away from the God of heaven. And Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh so that they could see the love of God, so they could see the power of God, so that they could see the wisdom of God. But then he was justified in the spirit is the next phrase that Paul uses. Fleshly speaking, Jesus was but a man. But spiritually speaking, he proved himself to be deity as well, did he not? He proved himself to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It's a good verse that summarizes both the fleshly and the spiritual aspects of Jesus Christ. In Romans 1 and verse 3, to gain the context, Paul writes, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. By the power of the Spirit, he was raised from the dead. He was justified in the Spirit. He was justified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who came upon him at, at his baptism manifested in the form of the dove that came. The Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. The power of the Spirit improved him to be the Son of God. By his words, by his works, God was testifying that he was indeed the Christ. And even after his ascension, at which, about which we'll speak in a moment, he was proved by the works that the apostles did in his name after he left to go back home to the Father. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. And they went, signs following them. Authorized by whom? Empowered by whom? By the Christ who returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit and the miraculous powers 
so that the apostles could prove that Jesus Christ was no imposter. And then the next phrase is, he was seen by angels, those heavenly messengers. Those heavenly messengers who sang at his birth to those shepherds in the field. Those who were with him after his terrible temptation of 40 days where he resisted Satan and the angel came came and ministered to him after that ordeal. The angels who were there at the tomb who were able to say, he's not here, he is risen. The angels who were there at his ascension. Oh yes, he was seen and ministered to throughout his earthly life by those heavenly messengers. And then Paul said he was preached among the Gentiles. And again, we've already alluded to the fact that the word mystery many times in Scripture refers to the hidden revelation that was later revealed that the gospel is for all. Of one the Lord has made the race, through one has come the fall. We're to take the gospel to the whole world. The Jews had trouble understanding that. They didn't understand the gospel was for all, but Jesus broke down that middle wall of partition or that barrier between Jew and Gentile. Listen to the words of Paul elsewhere in the Ephesian letter. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, the law of Moses he refers to, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. That's the church through the cross. Can't come to the cross without the church, thereby putting to death the enmity. Give me the cross but not the church is an impossibility because when one comes to the cross in obedience to the gospel of Christ, the term set by the one who died there, one is added to the church and must be a part of that church and faithful therein even unto death. The great commission, still current today, was to all the world. And then Paul says, believed on in the world as he continues to discuss what is without controversy. Can't argue with it. This great mystery of godliness. He was believed on in the world. Notice the order. First, he was preached among the Gentiles and then believed on. There must be first the preaching or the teaching, the contact with the word before there can be belief. But think about it. Jesus was branded as a criminal. He was crucified as if he were a thief. He died a horrific, shameful death of his day. The most shameful that one could die. And yet his influence was so great and so good that the very men who did that to him, ultimately many of them came to accept him as the Son of God and as their Savior. Oh, what a Savior, as we often say. That ought to rout the skeptics to think about the influence that the Christ has had by being believed on by many, millions even, in this world. And it should strengthen the feeble knees of many Christians.
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. His doctrine was contrary to the doctrine of the world. He condemned falsehood and lust and greed and so many things. And then finally received up in glory. Having finished his work here on earth, he went back to heaven where he really belonged. He was received there by the Father, given a welcome home. And his reception there is of the utmost importance to us if we're Christians. Because it was necessary that he go home to send the Holy Spirit upon the apostles to guide them into all truth. The truth which we now have in its complete and final written form. It was necessary that he go home that he might offer his blood as the price of man's redemption having died and shed his blood. And then going back as the one who bought us to become mediator, advocate, high priest, the propitiation for our sins at the right hand of the majesty on high. My dear friend, the late Richard Curry, had a wonderful outline on this one verse. And as a part of that, he talked about the book of nature being full of mysteries as the Bible is also full of mysteries, but we have revealed to us that which we need to know. But that which we cannot know fully, do we reject it because we cannot know it fully and because God hasn't chosen to reveal everything to us? We can't think of rejecting certain things physically because we don't understand everything about them. We don't understand how food uh, that we eat is assimilated in every aspect of it. But we eat nonetheless and our bodies are strengthened. We don't understand, as has often been said, how a brown cow can eat green grass and give white milk. We don't understand that a tender stalk of corn can push its way through a clod of dirt, that ivy can grow through a brick wall and at times even through plaster. But the God of nature is the God of revelation. Do we fully understand how a long, ugly worm, green in color with a white, with white spots on its sides and that hard, sharp horn for a tail that not a woman out here would touch and maybe not many of us men would, but how that ugly worm can, under proper conditions, weave itself a house of silk? And then entangle itself in that cocoon much smaller than itself, enclosed in tough silk. But in a few days, that one end of tough silk opens up and that ugly worm emerges as a beautiful butterfly, which we would love to have land on us and be able to admire. No, we don't understand everything about how God works in nature. Men build houses and they have to be taught how to do that. Birds don't have to be taught how to build theirs. The earth is a mysterious thing at times to us. It, it rotates on an axis at 1,040 miles an hour, 16 or so miles per minute, about 19 miles a second. 
an inclination of its axis that swings to the north and then to the south that gives us our seasons. And this is the first day of spring today, I believe. But God has set all that in motion. And I like something that my dear friend Richard Curry said as a part of his discussion of this great verse. He said, mystery in nature and the mystery in grace are always on God's side, never on man's side. In other words, man doesn't have to know about assimilation to eat and be healthy. He may not even be able to say or spell the word agriculture and he can grow great crops. But in grace, it's the same. Noah's part was simple. He just had to accept God's grace, which came through those instructions for him. The walls of Jericho came down not because those people understood every bit of instruction. They just had to believe and obey. You see, there's no mystery at all on man's side. Man's obligation is to simply accept God's instruction and obey. Do we have to understand everything about the atoning power that God has made available to us? Or do we just simply believe and obey and recognize that as we go down into the watery grave of baptism, God has promised to apply his blood. Do I have to understand everything about how the application of that blood takes place in a watery burial? Of course not. My part is simple. I just simply have to go down, as Paul elsewhere wrote, with faith in the operation of God, that he'll perform the operation if I'll have enough faith to comply. This morning, will you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and have enough faith to go down into our watery grave, believing with all your heart that God will do just what he said he would do if you'll comply. And that is, he will forgive your sins through the blood that he applies from his sinless son. If you need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered, we plead with you to do that now, confessing that sin that if it needs to be confessed in a public way. And let us pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loved you so much that he manifested himself through his son in the flesh and gave himself that we might have the opportunity to be with him forever. As we stand to sing, will you come?